Good afternoon. It is so good to see all your faces. Um, and I can't wait. I know that some of you are isolating or sick or traveling, and I can't wait when we're all back together. Um, but welcome to each and every single one of you here today. Some of you I haven't seen in years, and so I'm super excited. I'm going to try to stop smiling from ear to ear so that I can actually preach the message today. So the last time I spoke, um, we started a new series on cultivating courage. And we started by talking about cultivating courage to let go of what other people think. And I promised that the next time, which is today, I would kind of continue that, share some more practical ways, and specifically talking about how do we handle criticism? How do we handle criticism? Well, this week at the Oscars, um, and I promise that things in the world don't happen just to become my sermon illustrations, but it just so happened that at the Oscars, um, as y'all I'm sure are aware, that comedian Chris Rock made a joke about um, actor Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, um, her specifically her shaved head, um, a joke that she didn't appreciate since her hair loss is due to a medical condition. And her husband, um, actor Will Smith, shocked the 16.6 million people watching live as he walked on stage and slapped um, Chris Rock on the face. He then returned to his seat but continued to yell at the comic uh, with expletives, and it was a moment that millions more have watched since, and it's been in the news. Um. And of course, you know, a few people have sided with Will, saying that he was, you know, that, that Chris Rock's joke was in poor taste and that Will's anger was excusable. But most people have said violence of any kind, except for in self-defense, is unacceptable. And the Academy is, has started disciplinary action against him. Um, and Will Smith has since publicly apologized for his behavior. How do you respond when you are criticized or someone you love is being criticized? Perhaps you too feel angry, which is a very natural impulse to get defensive, to want to justify ourselves. Perhaps you feel like retaliating and hurting them back. Or perhaps, and this is the category that I often resort to, you feel discouraged and you retreat into a fetal position, <laughs> feeling incredibly low about yourself. Perhaps it puts you in a funk where you're afraid of further failure and rejection and interaction, so you kind of just, you know, uh, become more reclusive. We've all been there, right? Criticism is something that we all face sometime or the other, no matter who we are. Even Jesus faced criticism. In fact, he faced so much criticism from the moment he was born, right? Growing up in a small town where not everybody believes in immaculate conception. And so, the fact that your mother had you before you before she wed uh, was something that I'm sure many of the children in his town continued to remind him as he was growing up. In fact, the religious leaders pretty much say to Jesus' face and calls him an Ill illegitimate child. That's a reference in John chapter 8, verse 41, where they say, We know who our father is. They also look down on him for being uneducated and for being from Nazareth, which was kind of like the town of ill repute. Right? But the sad thing is, people in Nazareth themselves rejected Jesus. So when we turn to Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 58, it says that Jesus went to Nazareth, his hometown, and he taught there in the synagogue. Everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? And you would think that they were amazed and were impressed, but no, they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son 
We know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. Right? How sad. The people that you grew up with, the people who know you best, they're scoffing and criticizing Jesus. And did you catch what Jesus says? Not only does he say that he has no honor amongst his hometown, but even amongst his own family. John chapter 7 verse 5 says that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. And it, they go so far as not just not believing him, but in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 onwards, it says that Jesus is um, talking to a crowd and his family, verse 21, hears what's happening and they try to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said, his own family. And the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Imagine if you're Jesus, right? Remember, Jesus is God whose core nature is love, right? So this isn't someone who just doesn't care about people. This is someone who deeply cares about people, someone who has a very tender heart, right? Someone who, who um, cares about the individuals he's created, the individuals he's trying to redeem, but also is just a loving, kind person by nature. So imagine how all these insults must feel for him. He's not some stoic, you know, unfeeling, you know, person. He's Jesus, an extremely kind and loving and tender-hearted person, having to face criticism from strangers, from neighbors, from his own family, from the religious leaders who have influence then over other people. If I were Jesus and I had the power that he had, I would have for sure called down lightning from heaven to prove myself, right? To prove them wrong, to vindicate myself. But Jesus doesn't do that. He has incredible self-control and patience and mercy. And even at his trial and crucifixion, when he's already being physically tortured, he gets further persecuted with emotional mocking. We read in Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 65, that the men, these are the soldiers, the Roman soldiers who were guarding Jesus, began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? This was their game. Guess which one of you hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Not only the soldiers, but in Matthew 27, we read that the two rebels who were crucified with him, one in his right, one in his left, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And then verse 44 just Blows my mind. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, you have to imagine that when you're crucified, the science of it is that it's very difficult to breathe because you're being held up by these nails and you've got a sharp, you know, it's not polished wood. It's sharp, rugged wood behind you, scraping your whipped back. So it's incredibly painful for people who are crucified to talk, let alone breathe. 
And here they are using their last painful breaths to insult Jesus. Hurt people hurting people. And how does Jesus respond to all this? Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, Jesus understood that humans are capable of, of, of amazing goodness, but also great evil. He understood that the enemy uses human beings in pain to inflict pain on each other. And he understood that it is only through his sacrifice on the cross that we can experience healing and transformation. So he endured unjust criticism, right, slander. And even though it made him feel, I'm sure, incredibly sad and frustrated and discouraged, when you, when you, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then the record of Jesus' life, right, you see that Jesus experienced a gamut of emotions. He, he, he wept. He yelled, he was exhausted, he was hungry, right? He experienced all these human emotions. And so, and, and even at the night of the crucifixion, before he was arrested, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus weeping and begging God, please, I don't want to go through this. And so, when, when we see Jesus in all his humanness, experiencing all these uh, emotions, going through all this suffering, it helps me remember that he's someone I can talk to because he understands. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 say, we do, not ha- we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, because Jesus understands what we go through, we can approach him with confidence, right? We can go to him knowing that he's not going to add judgment and insult to what we've been through, but instead he's going to come and give us grace. And I really like how in the original Greek, the word for take, where it says that we approach God's throne and we receive mercy, it's not actually a, a passive receiving. The original Greek actually says that we take in hand. And so I, 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 I imagine going to God and know, knowing this is someone who will finally understand me, right? This is someone who will understand exactly what I've been through, who gets me, and I'm going to go and he's going to give me mercy and I'm going to take it for myself and for those who hurt me. When we are facing criticism, God's throne of grace is a good place to be because that's where we find the ability to find healing for ourselves and the ability to be able to find healing in the relationships. Last time I shared, um, I said a practical way to do this is to ask God in prayer, God, what is the lie that the enemy wants me to believe? Right? What is the lie? And then to listen to and, and sit there um, and, and really let God reveal to us the lies that we often subscribe to. And then ask God, God, what is the truth? What do you think of me? What do you think of this situation? And to allow God to then show us a truth that will set us free. So the first way to respond to criticism is to spend time in prayer in God's presence, to go to Jesus because he understands us. Here's another way to respond to criticism, and it's to understand the context of the criticism. 
right? What kind of criticism is it? Is it constructive or malicious? Is it true or false? Is it coming from a place of love or a place of pain? Is it coming from someone who knows what they're talking about or someone who absolutely has no idea what they're talking about? Right? Context matters because an internet troll is very different from your work manager, right? There's a, there's a huge difference in the, in the level of criticism and, and the veracity and, and, and whether they even know you. If it's constructive and meant to be helpful feedback, you can accept it as it is, as it was meant to be. But if it's unnecessarily harsh or false, look at the context. Maybe they've had a really bad day or a bad year and they're taking it out on you. Because as I said earlier, hurt people hurt people. And this is their pain crying out. Recognize that pain. Understand that the criticism is in the context of that pain and that it's not you, it's them. Or perhaps it's cultural. Every Korean adult over the age of 40 in the past few years has felt the need to tell me about my weight gain. Every single one without fail. And it's not because they're concerned for my health or my well-being, but it's because they disapprove of my failure to meet their culture expectations of, of beauty. And when I get irked by their comments, I have to remind myself, that's the world that they grew up in. Right? That's their cultural context. That's how they view, that's part of their values. Um, and so it's not, it doesn't mean that they're right, nor does it mean that they're being malicious. They almost can't help themselves. It's like this automatic compulsion and this need they feel to point it out to me. And so I have to remember that context matters, right? Culture, religion, worldview, experience, all of this shapes our perspectives. And so when someone is criticizing you, just pause and think, where are they coming from? What is their cultural, religious worldview? I remember before I had children, I used to judge both the parents and the children when they misbehaved. Because I had no idea what it meant to raise a child. And now I ask God to forgive me because I know now how incredibly difficult it is to parent a child, how every child is different, how every family is different. And then you have to walk a while in someone else's shoes before you can begin to judge. If the criticism is coming from outside, who someone who doesn't know or understand what you know, the context is of uh, what they're criticizing you about, I want you to remember this quote from U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. It's a well-known quote where he says, it's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcomings, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Right? In other words, sometimes the criticism is coming from a place where it's easy to criticize, right? Because they have no idea. And so keep that in mind, that it's better to be in the fight um, and the there will always be critics on the outside when you're fighting in a worthy cause. The third way to respond to criticism is to remain humble.
There may be something in the criticism that will help us to grow. It might be good to ask for clarification. Hey, what did you mean by that comment? Can you give me an example? So that we can take notes and we can improve. When Moses, who was a leader who led the Israelites out of slavery, um, you know, in 1500 BC and led them through the wilderness, he had a huge workload. And one day his father-in-law Jethro came to visit him and he observed Moses for a day. And he said to Moses uh, in Exodus chapter 18, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around from, uh, waiting for you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they, they, whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. You see, Moses could have said, Hey, I grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, right? I was a prince of Egypt. I know how to rule, thank you very much. And you've only been here for 24 hours. But that's not what he's, how he responds. He says, thank you, I will consider it. And he actually puts it into action and he follows his advice. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31 to 33 says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Here's a fourth way. Let God be the one to defend us. Pastor John um, MacArthur is an internationally renowned speaker and writer. And when he was asked, how do you handle criticism? Because the more influence you have, the greater criticism you often receive. And he said this. He said, I can't keep up with all my critics. I learned a long time ago not to try to defend myself, but to say, thank you for pointing these things out. I'm sorry that I've offended you. I'm sorry. Pray for me. And then move on. I never want to be backed into a position of being defensive, because if the truth were known, I'm not perfect. I know that. And if you happen to pick the wrong thing to criticize me for, you could just as well have picked the right thing to criticize me for. So who am I to defend myself? I will defend the people around me. I will defend them until I have reason not to. But I don't need to defend myself. I really like what he says there, that he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that I'm not perfect. And because I know that, I can accept criticism, even if it's for the wrong thing, right? So even, if it's, even if they're wrong about it, the truth is I am flawed. And so he's able to take the criticism, thank them, and move on. He has nothing to prove. And I think a lot of times one of the reasons why we get so defensive when we're criticized is because we, we like to have the facade that we have it all together. So when that facade gets shattered, we then get embarrassed, and embarrassment leads to anger or, you know, all these other feelings. But if we already, you know, act and behave with the fact that, yeah, we are flawed, 
we are flawed, but that's okay because we are human and we're growing and we're learning, then we can accept criticism for what it is. Time and truth will tell the story. Psalms chapter 37, verses 5 to 9 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness Righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Trust that God is going to vindicate us, right? He's going to bring about justice. Proverbs 26, verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. We've seen that with Will Smith. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, when they hurled their insults at him, this is Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So remember that God is in your corner. And so we don't have to defend ourselves. Right? Time and truth will show um, and, and vindicate um, justice. So instead, choose forgiveness and healing. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21 said, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will replay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, we will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is what Jesus did in his lifetime. Right? This is the example that he left for us. That he saw people with the ability um, of both positive and negative traits. And he was willing to forgive them for the bad and uplift them for the good. And when we forgive people, it's really our own healing that we are bringing about. Because if we don't let go of that bitterness, we're giving that criticism ongoing power to heart us every single day. Forgive others and forgive yourself. Sometimes that's the hardest part, right? Especially if the criticism was something that you know, it was something that you did do wrong and someone criticizes you for it, right? Sometimes it, we feel guilt and shame and that leads us into a downward spiral. And so not only do we forgive others, but we have to forgive ourselves by going to God and taking that mercy, right? Taking that mercy and grace that is enough for us. Another way to respond to criticism is to create and keep healthy boundaries. Nehemiah was a leader restoring the walls of Jerusalem in 5th century BC. And throughout the entire building project, many individuals tried to deter the project by criticizing him. And these individuals, um, I won't read the whole passage, but they basically come to him and they say, hey, meet us over here. And they repeat, they come to him again and again and again. And, he, and Nehemiah is able to say, no. I cannot leave what I'm doing and the work that I have to do to stop and go and respond to you. And he's very firm and clear about his boundaries. And so the critics um, start slandering him. They start um, spreading rumors that Nehemiah is actually rebelling against the king. And at the very end, in verse 8, I like how he says, Nothing like what you are saying is happening. 
you're just making it up out of your head. So Nehemiah is able to say, yep, nope, I'm not going to come and address this, right? Five times they come trying to get, you know, get him to come and meet with them and, and argue with them and defend himself. And he's like, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to get engaged in that. Verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. And then he says, remember, and he's addressing God, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. I love how Nehemiah just says, I, here's my boundary. I'm not going to spend time and energy dealing with my critics. I'm just going to focus on the work that God has given me to do. And I'm going to leave it up to God to take care of them, right? And that's how he finishes this incredible reconstruction in 52 days. If there's someone in your life whose critical and negative attitudes are taking you away from what God has called you to do, you may need to create, communicate, and keep some boundaries, how much time and access we give them into our lives. Finally, the seventh way to respond to criticism is to be an encourager, to break the cycle of criticism that is in our world, to spread a spirit of encouragement rather than a spirit of negativity and gossip. When Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians um, in the first century, converted to Christianity, many people were skeptical. They weren't really sure if he had converted um, because he had done so much bad. He had killed so many Christians. But then Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, took Saul under his wing and bridged him with other people. In Acts chapter 9, it says that when he came to Jerusalem, this is Saul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And so because of Barnabas, Saul is able to become the incredible missionary that he became. Become a son or daughter of encouragement, empowering people to be all that they can be. Use your words to inspire hope and worship rather than discouragement. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry and don't be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed. And when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. This is Ruby Bridges. And when she was only six years old, she had to do something incredibly difficult. And when I think about it, I just, I can't imagine a six-year-old today being able to do this. She was an incredible individual. In 1960, the schools in New Orleans, Louisiana, were segregated between black and white students, despite the fact that six years before, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that racial segregation in public schools were illegal. But schools did not want to segregate, or sorry, integrate. And a federal court in 1960 finally ordered the state of Louisiana to desegregate. And a judge ordered Ruby Bridges to attend first grade at an all-white school. On Ruby's first day, a large crowd of angry people gathered outside the school. 
They carried signs that said, go home. Integration is a moral sin. All I want for Christmas is a clean white school. People screamed vicious slurs at her and threatened to kill her and her family. One woman carried a coffin with a black doll in it. Every day, for weeks that turned into months, Ruby had to walk through this crowd to go into school and to come out of school. Once inside the school, she was the only student because all the white families had pulled all their children out of school. So all day, every day, she was all alone, except for her teacher, Mrs. Henry. Mrs. Henry later recalled, Sometimes I'd look at this six-year-old girl and I would wonder, how did she do it? How did she walk by those mobs and then sit here all by herself and yet learn and seem so relaxed and comfortable? One day, Mrs. Henry watched Ruby through the window coming into school and the mob screaming at her. And she had these marshals escort her because of, for her safety. And she was walking and all of a sudden Ruby stopped and looked at the, at the crowd for a few minutes. And the crowd rushed in to try to get to her. And the marshals had to push them back and, and hurry her along. And so when she came inside, Mrs. Henry asked her, Hey, what was that? What were you doing? Were you talking to the people? And she said, Oh, no, no. You see, every day before I go to school and before I go home, I say a prayer for them. But today I forgot. So then I remembered halfway through the walk. So then I stopped to say this prayer. Please, God, try to forgive those people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them, just like you did those folks long time ago when they said terrible things about you. Only six years old, but she understood that forgiveness shatters the cycle of hatred. That prayer is our greatest shield, that we are all in need of mercy. May we too respond with such grace and courage and in doing so be agents of change. Will you please join us in singing in his time. In your time 
Father, please teach us to wait for your time, that you will defend us, that you will vindicate us at the right time, and to instead take mercy for ourselves and for those who hurt us and criticize us, and to learn from them, to be humble and to grow and acknowledge that, Father God, we, we always have more um, things to learn. And Father, I pray that we would have the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Ruby, to be able to forgive those um, who hurt us, to be able to forgive ourselves and to live as agents of change in this world. Thank you for allowing us this space and this time to, to explore this topic. We pray in your son's name. Amen. <laughs> 